For the week of November 12, 2013, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. And we are live at the MDVC Solar Focus Conference 2013 in Washington, D.C. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media. And uh, today we're excited because we are no longer a bunch of disembodied voices. We are here live on stage in downtown D.C. in front of a crowd of business professionals, policy folks, advocates, a wide swath of people in the solar industry. So we're delighted to be here. And just for the folks back home, can you make yourselves, the people in front of us, known? All right, all right. That's how we know we're in the solar industry and not the coal industry. <laughs> all right, so I'm delighted to introduce the Energy Gang, my regular co-hosts. We have uh, energy policy wonk, smart grid expert, and founder of the energy policy shop 38 North Solutions, Catherine Hamilton. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm just great. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And uh, I had to put, uh, I had to take my pajamas off and put clothes on for this one. That's right, yeah. Because you all are all here watching. (laughs) Yep. And you're usually doing a lot of work on Capitol Hill, so I'm sure it's nice to get here and be at a conference where people are actually doing stuff. Yes, where people live in the real world. (laughs) And speaking of doers, we have Jigger Shah, a man well-known in the solar industry. He is known as the founder of Sun Edison. He's a clean tech investor and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, how are you? I'm doing great. These are my people. (laughs) And you're always podcasting from some different location, so I thought maybe we might have to Skype your head in from somewhere, but we're glad to have you in person. That's good to be here. All right, quick roundup of how we're going to do things. So every week, the gang talks, we procure three stories in the news, environmental-related, energy-related, or clean tech-related, and we debate the merits of those stories. Today, we're going to tie together some of the topics that we talked about at the conference and try to add some additional insight Uh, We also like to bring in guests every other week or so to highlight a certain topic. And today we have a very, very special guest who's going to come in on the second part of the show, outgoing FERC Chairman John Wellinghoff, who's going to come in and help us tie together some of these themes and talk about his thoughts on the future of PV and distributed generation and how that's going to impact how utilities operate and how we run power markets. So we're really excited about that. So now that you know what to expect, let's begin. In our first segment, we're going to talk solar policy. There are very distinct differences between the way East Coast and West Coast states have formed their solar promotion policies, and we're going to debate the effectiveness of the East Coast approach. Then in the second segment, we're going to talk solar technology and business model innovation. Um, What are the best deployment strategies out there today? What's working? What's not working? And then finally, we're going to bring Chairman Wellinghoff on the stage and ask if utilities and regulators are prepared for the coming onslaught of distributed generation. Let's get into it. When people think of solar, they often think of California or other sun-splashed western states. But as people here in the crowd know, the East Coast solar market has also been vibrant, if not equally tumultuous. Uh, States like New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Maryland have historically led. And now we see D.C., North Carolina, Georgia, and others start to move up the ranks. So is the West really the best? Jigger Shah Tell me about your perception of how East Coast markets are operating. What do you think is working in East Coast markets today? There's some responsibility that we have for East Coast markets. I mean, Tom Lydon here did a lot of work on uh, 
DS Rex and Chris Cook clearly like actually implemented a lot of these programs, and so we sort of have to, you know, take the phrase "you break it, you buy it," right? So, so that's uh, <laughs> we sort of have to own this. But I think the good thing about the SREC market is, given how fast the cost of solar has come down, the SRECs have actually come down equally as fast in many of the markets. And when you think about New Jersey, for instance, we're actually several years ahead of schedule in terms of the amount of SRECs that are available in the marketplace, and that's a good thing, right? That means that we're ahead of schedule compared to what we promised the government that we would provide. It's frustrating for the solar industry because they want to move at the pace at which the consumers want to move as opposed to the pace that the policymakers set. But frankly, I think that the East Coast markets in general outside of D.C., which is curious to me, um, has actually, have actually run pretty well. Yeah. Uh, this SREC conversation is one that comes up when we talk about East Coast markets. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of reporting on what Jer- New Jersey was up to in 2005, 2006, as it was going through its transition. And you had this interesting dynamic between uh, a lot of the advocates and folks really pushing for feed-in tariffs or some other structured program, and then the folks looking for the market-based SREC program. Um, a lot of people thought that SRECs were um, going to be failed markets, but Although we've seen some difficulties in leading states, we've certainly seen demand continue to grow uh, in New Jersey, in Maryland, um, and now, you know, possibly D.C. What was your perception of these SREC markets when they were being developed, and how, do you think that they function properly today? Well, properly is, like I said, I mean, <laughs> properly is a, a loaded word. But look, I mean, they worked, right? We actually hit the numbers. I remember when... Chris Cook and I were actually sitting there trying to map out what megawatt targets we should put in to the Maryland legislation. And I remember we deliberately made them really low in the first four years because we were worried that if we were super short on the megawatts that the policymakers would think that solar couldn't deliver. And, you know, that caught up and bit us a little bit, right? Because in 2009, folks were frustrated that we were way ahead of schedule and that Maryland actually then had to go in and change the law to make it more aggressive, which, you know, Mike Healy and a lot of the folks around here were essential in doing. But, you know, I think that we were able to live with it. The, the thing is, is that there's a lot of folks who say feed-in tariffs are the best, but people hate feed-in tariffs in this country. It's not because they're bad. It's because it's called PERPA. We invented feed-in tariffs in this country. And there's a lot of people in this country who still have negative stigma around the fact that coal plants are still getting paid way too high a price even, you know, 20 years later. And so it was very hard for us to go to politicians and public utility regulators and convince them to do what they thought was a failed policy in the 1980s and part of the 1990s. Catherine, you do a lot of work uh, on the national level and talk to companies operating in all sorts of different states. What's your perception of the policy environment over here on the East Coast that may be different from um, other leading solar states like California, Arizona, Colorado? Yeah, so first of all, I have to say state policy, I think, is much more difficult than federal policy. I think I bow down to people who do state work. I think it is a buzzsaw if you're coming from the federal side to walk into a state. And I had that happen in Maryland when I had to testify for Smart Grid, and Malcolm Wolf testified on the We Love All Y'all panel, and I was on the panel between BG&E and Pepco, the end of which they looked at me and said, thank you for being the only person who's ever been beat up more than we were. (laughs) And, I mean, state work is really hard, unless Unless you understand the whole context of the state, unless you understand the entire ecosystem in every state, 
is different. So California, you can have a referendum about anything. Do you like jelly beans? Yeah, I love jelly beans. Oh, we're going to repeal that referendum about jelly beans. I mean, they constantly are doing referenda that then move them into legislation. But they have a very different way of doing policy than the East Coast. And I just think states are completely different and have really different drivers. So it's rates, it's also the generation mix. It's the natural resources. I mean, what are the resources in each state? But it's also a huge amount of leadership. So if you look at Massachusetts, Duval Patrick, I mean, he is one of the biggest supporters of solar energy you're ever going to find. Um, if you look at North Carolina, and I talked to someone from North Carolina yesterday, and they're like, people say North Carolina is good? Really? Um, those guys have been working in the trenches for decades. They have built an ecosystem down there. Their sustainable energy group started in the 70s. The Solar Center just celebrated its 25th anniversary. I mean, it's not like they just started yesterday doing this. So they've slowly been building up a constituency. And listening to the guy from Georgia today, um, and shoot me if I ever have to go down there, that just sounds really difficult. Um, because well, they will shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what I mean. Um, but but Theirs is, this is about building a constituency, and that's what's been so heartening to hear today, is that because of the amount of solar that's being put out there, you have this constituent. You have a base of people who can then go forward and support policies for solar and other distributed generation. That's actually a really interesting point that some folks were making in the uh, panel that just took place on solar in Virginia. And what we see in, in you know, places like Kansas or North Carolina or other states where there's been a push to repeal renewable energy standards and other um, laws promoting renewable energy, they've built up. You know, these laws were passed when there was a lot of support for these state-level laws, and th they built a constituency. And now it's very difficult to repeal these laws. But as we see in a state like Virginia, where there really isn't a big solar or renewable energy constituency, it's going to be very difficult to promote an RPS uh, in that state. So what are some of the drivers that we can look, up, be, look to beyond the, that traditional uh, state-level policy path? Do either of you have any ideas on that? In particular, I mean, you're a Virginia, Virginia native and Virginia resident. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I was raised in Lynchburg and not the fun Lynchburg, um, <laughs> where the whiskey's from. Um, so, so Virginia is interesting. I, and I also worked for Virginia Power for 10 years, Fort Dominion. And it's actually a really creative utility. Back in the 80s, when demand went through the roof, we had thermal energy storage rates. I was selling ice storage systems in the 80s. Um, they had TOU rates. I mean... When regulatory and policy issues compress, utilities become really innovative. But what I think we need to look at is the unregulated arms of those utilities, like Dominion, FPNL, that has Nextera, Duke. The unregulated arms are investing in this stuff big time. Yep. They're investing all over the place. They're investing in PJM. They're doing solar and storage and wind. And that's what we need to watch out for because once they test those, then they can bring them home. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, Dominion just invested in the uh, 20 megawatt solar farm in uh, the Indianapolis airport, so so they're taking that over. But look, I mean, when you look at Terry McAuliffe's team, which you know I think many of you in this room and many um, environmental groups and others actually should take some responsibility for putting him into office because you know they raised I think over three and a half million dollars for his campaign, which was used to knock on doors. Um, guess who's on the transition team from energy? 
the people from Dominion, right? And so, you know, they didn't ask any of us to be on the transition team. They didn't ask any of, like, the MDVC of folks to get on the transition team. It's the folks who actually don't want anything to happen, who want to basically take us back to the Stone Ages. I mean, Virginia is the only place where they actually did put the genie back in the bottle on deregulation. They deregulated their market, and then they actually re-regulated their market in Dominion's territory, right? So it's tough. I think the way we're going to win in Virginia is we're going to pass state tax credits that will support solar, and I think you know, we're going to probably try to bypass Dominion. Um, some other interesting differences between East Coast and West Coast states. I mean, we have a much broader mix of deregulated and regulated markets here. Um, interestingly, of course, we have the, the SREC markets that have evolved, and we also see the use of green banks here on the East Coast that we don't necessarily see over on the West Coast. Jigger, you've been involved in some of the efforts in New York around the, the Green Bank there. Um, what kind of tool is that? How effective has that been so far for solar promotion? Well, I mean, the reality of the situation is it hasn't been very useful yet. New York hasn't been formed yet. Connecticut has, you know, this really weird, you know, socialist experiment going on for their Green Bank. But um, well, What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, they're basically just asking the state to provide low-interest loans to be able to compete with the private sector on providing the lowest possible costs of funds. And and we all know that those funds will run out. And as soon as they run out, I don't think they're actually educating local banks on how to fill the void for the solar industry. And so I think it was you know, ill-conceived, and my sense is, is that they'll fix it uh, before it's too late. Uh, the, the New York Green Bank is proposed to actually support private sector initiatives, so they're not expecting to provide direct loans, but in fact you know, helping $100 million funds who want to invest in cogen maybe take some of the risks off their plate by providing them first loss guarantees or, or you know, things like that. And so I think that'll be a far more um, catalytic uh, function. But, you know, it's true. I also think when we talk West Coast, we're really talking California, yeah. right? So, I mean, I don't think Oregon was structured, you know, in, uh, in a proactive way or neither was uh, Colorado. Well, we're also talking um, Arizona as well. Yeah, well, Arizona is a whole another piece of work, as, <laughs> as you know. I mean, the funny thing about Arizona is that that was actually the first solar carve-out state. We passed a solar carve-out there in 1998, and they've been um, deliberately undermining solar policy there ever since. And so we're working our butt off to try to make sure that Arizonans actually have a real choice um, in where they get their power from. But Arizona has not been an easy market for us. Yeah, I think a big driver on the East Coast is also um, resilience from storms because after Sandy, um, those leaders started baking in policy that was gonna, um, that's going to favor distributed generation for resilience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've talked about that as well. Um, and finally, I want to move on to the second topic, but one interesting thing I think is that we should note is that the net metering battles that we're seeing out West have not quite come to the East Coast yet. And so I, I, I'm wondering, Jigger, if you've heard from anyone about some, some brewing battles around net metering that have become uh, increasingly vicious out west. Yeah, well, I think on the east coast, uh, there's a couple things that are different. One is that our growth trajectory curve starts from a lower base, and so we haven't hit the penetration levels that they've hit um, on the west coast in terms of um, uh, percentage of the total grid, although we're getting there pretty quickly in Massachusetts and, and New Jersey. Um, but I also think that when you think about the holistic policy environment where you've got Gene Fox at the Board of Public Utilities in New Jersey and Deval Patrick in Massachusetts and then Governor O'Malley has been a huge fan of our work in, in Maryland, I think they're actually on our side um, where I do think that they're, you know, they're far more contentious than some of these other states. 
Yeah, and I would not, uh, Ron Benz mentioned this um, during the lunch conversation, but I would not underestimate uh, the EPA rules and the impact that those are going to have on what states are going to be looking at. Yeah, absolutely, and that will have to be developed state by state Mm -hmm. as well. All right, so let's move on because we want to have enough time here for Chairman Wellinghoff to join us. So our second topic is on business model innovation, and this is a topic near and dear to Jigger's heart and something that he writes a lot about in his book, Creating Climate Wealth. Um, So as we all know, the solar module is no longer the most expensive part of the system. And uh, to continue dropping installed costs, people are focusing on hardware, labor, permitting, customer acquisition, and now financial innovation. Um, So what are the best approaches here? I mean, obviously, there's a mix. But um, Jigger, if you had to pinpoint some of the most important innovations happening in solar deployment now, when you look at Again, the permitting side, what's happening in hardware. What do you think is the most important? Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that we believe, whether it's true or not is beside the point, but we actually believe that the financial innovation part is on its, on its way, right? So that's why we're turning our attention to some of these other areas to really supercharge cost reduction and, and the reduction of levelized cost of energy. And when you say financial innovation, what are you talking about? Like securitization uh, well, and... Well, first, I think it's just Solar City, Sunrun, Sunjavity, Sun Edison, you know, One Roof, the all these CPF guys. I mean, I mean, whether we like them, hate them, whatever, they're actually in existence, and they are bringing huge amounts of capital to our industry, and I think people respect them for that. I mean, Washington Gas in this area is one of the top ten investors in uh, solar in the country, which is amazing. We keep talking about Google, but Washington Gas is actually in the same breath there, I think, in terms of their leadership in investing in this area. So now they've actually set aside certain metrics around what a good project is and what a bad project is and how you calculate the IRR. So we now have the ability um, to, to judge these new technologies, whether it's racking systems that let you install systems faster or whether it's power electronics that claim to um, allow you to maintain the system more effectively so that you can actually make sure more power output's coming. You can actually say... If you do this, it will generate 8% more power output, will generate a higher rate of return of X, which means the developer will get more money, which then allows that person who developed the racking system or the, or the power electronic system to charge for their product and to convince the installer that they should pay a hefty sum for their innovation because it'll come around and actually they'll get paid back for it through the, um, through the financial innovation. So, but it, to answer your question in a nutshell, I think the hottest thing going in the next three to four years right now in solar is power electronics. Catherine, we've talked a little bit about the evolution of policy around how to drop the installed cost of solar. And, and initially, you know, the, the SunShot initiative was focused a lot on manufacturing um, and getting manufacturing costs down. And now they've really switched to focus on the soft cost, to focus on creating streamlined permitting processes, to do some more interesting things around, the, around hardware, um, some power electronics, racking, etc. cetera. Uh, when you look at the suite of policies that are just now being developed and some that have been have out there for the last couple of years, I mean, what do you think has been working and what hasn't been working? Yeah, so clearly tax policy has been working incredibly well. Um, I think agency policy, as you look at, like, the rooftop challenge, and um, DOE has been really good at that, really good at finding model communities. Um, DOE is good at bringing people together, convening, trying to decide, okay, so what are some, you know, model contracting options? What are things that we can do that we can then we can deploy and sort of seed everybody else? Um, I think other things that DOE has done well, so NREL has this new 
integration facility that's pretty interesting, that that's going to help on the grid scale integration side, which I think is enormously important as we look at more than just solar, but then how do you put everything together on the grid. Um, but other agencies that are really important, uh, DOD is certainly huge because um, because they're allowed to do longer contracts um, over longer periods of time, and also they're willing to ha- to become a laboratory for microgrids and other types of, you know, interesting um, interesting configurations of technology. I also would not downplay GSA, which is our mm-hmm. lo- largest landlord, to be able to deploy all types of technologies and models for how you deploy through policy. Um, and then, you know, the Federal Energy Management Program. It's like lead by example. So let the feds figure out in some ways how to do it, and then you can replicate it um, to the private sector. Mm-hmm. All right. This is one of the big differences between the gang here, and that is you're pretty positive about a lot of the programs that are out there in support of the industry. And Jigger, you're usually not. I mean, you're very critical of the administration. You're very critical of DOD. And I mean, do, do you? why do you disagree so heavily with what Catherine laid out? I mean, you, you, you always say that you don't think that these programs are effective. Well, I mean, <clears throat> compared to doing nothing, they're completely <laughs> effective. Um, but I think to suggest for a moment that, like, this administration is on track to helping us achieve these goals is, I mean, look, I get this administration, I mean, obviously John Wellinghoff aside, I think, you know, his leadership at the FERC has been extraordinary, and the way in which he's brought storage and demand response and load control and a lot of these other pieces into the mix has been, um, I think we'll look back on this period and actually think it's actually quite historic in terms of what he's been able to accomplish. Um, But I think when you think about the cost reductions that we've achieved in solar, I don't think this administration can take credit for them. And I think when you think about um, where we were headed on, on securitization and financial securitization, um, you know, this administration actively killed applications within the IRS because they didn't want to give us read status and they didn't want to help us with MLPs and some of this other stuff. So I'm tired of that. Like, I mean, I, I think that what we are doing is real. I think what we're doing actually is mainstream. And what we're doing has already been proven by Japan and Germany and other places. And I'm tired of the president saying that renewable energy is not ready for prime time and that we need natural gas as a bridge to the future. We don't. We're ready to scale up. And we are going to scale up according to Citibank, Deutsche Bank, and others. I just wish this administration would say nice things about us once in a while. One other thing, by the way, though, um, I do want to talk about storage for a second, which I know is near and dear to Catherine's heart. Um, One of the things that I've heard at this conference and then at other ones that I've been at is that, you know, Standard Solar, which is, you know, a big player in this area, but then also Solar City and California and other places around the country, um, have been noticing that residential customers are actually asking for storage with their um, residential systems, which is a big change. And when Chris and I, um, Chris Cook and I first started Sun Edison together, he had just written a paper on residential storage. And, you know, I remember saying to him, well, you know, that the time will come when the market actually sort of wants to do that. And, um, you know, lo and behold, the time is now. The consumers, because of Sandy or resiliency or, you know, Pepco's inability to keep the lights on in this region, you know, are wanting backup power, which is amazing. And, and um, that's, that's something that I think John's policies is going to really work to our advantage because once you have enough of those, um, those storage units in residential homes, I think you're going to be able to bid that capacity into the PJM market and some of the other markets, and actually those residential customers will be able to get paid for that. Um, you know, folks like Solar Grid Storage and others in this region are already, you know, doing the first steps in that direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. Once you can be valued for all the different services that you can provide, then it becomes economically feasible to do just about anything. If, so if you get the market right, the technology will be there. It's already there. What excites you most about the storage-solar combination? I mean, are there any particular business models or technology models that either of you see that um, lead you to believe that it's happening? Well, what I'm hoping is that this, and it'll be fun to talk to the chairman about this too, is that this will help alleviate some of the fights that we're having over net metering, that this will bring us a whole different new way of looking at things and valuing things. So you bring in other values and benefits um, that you can monetize and, um, and then build a system that does a lot of things other than just produce low-cost energy. It also provides resilience and that you have a, that, that, that's monetized. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that once you start talking about storage and it becomes more than just you know, your laptop battery, but actually something that's bigger than that, electric vehicles are also you know, right in that conversation. And so I think we're actually the gateway not only to energy efficiency, which we've been for many homeowners, but we're also the gateway to electric vehicles. And I, don't know, I think pretty proud of the industry for, for, for doing that. Yeah. All right, well, we're kind of crunched for time here. We started a bit late, so I want to get to the third segment and bring Chairman John Wellinghoff up here and uh, talk about his perspective on you know, what a lot of these developments mean for the electricity sector broadly. So since 2006, Chairman Wellinghoff has really overseen a lot of major changes within the regulatory landscape, and, and we've seen some pretty dramatic changes within the demand response sector and energy efficiency and distributed generation technologies, particularly solar PV. So he's kind of see how, seen how this evolved and how the regulations have evolved around it. Um, Chairman Wellinghoff, you recently told one of our reporters at Green Tech Media that you think that solar, you look at the growth curve of solar and the, and the cost curve, that you think it's going to dominate everything, that it will overtake everything. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, first, Stephen, I want to, want to say hello to you and uh, to Jigger and Catherine, and thank you for having me on the panel. And I also want to do a shameless promotion, not for me, but for you. I love Green Tech Media. It's one of the, the publications that I read all the time, and I really appreciate the work that you, you do. And, and the information that you get out to the industry. So I think you, you folks do a great job. What, what, what did I mean Can by... Can you hear him? <laughs> yeah, you guys might need to just pass mics back and forth. What, what, what did I mean by, by solar is going to dominate? Well, I think we're seeing you know, sort of the Moore's Law cost curve um, together with the entrepreneurial spirit and the innovation we're seeing with you know, multiple companies coming into an industry in a way that is really going to just overtake what is a, you know, a monopolistic, um, very conservative, very uh, non-innovative structure uh, that can't resist the consumer demand. I was at uh, the Solar Power um, International Conference in Chicago a couple weeks back. There were 600 exhibitors. There were over 12,000 people at that particular conference. So given the advances we've seen in technologies on the one side, given on the other side the desire that we're seeing at the consumer level to have control and to have um, the ability to know that they can ensure the reliability of their system contained within either their home or their business or their microgrid or their small community, people are going to, I think, continue to drive towards uh, having those kinds of technologies available to them. And once that happens, 
through, uh, again, uh, the technology and the entrepreneurial spirit that we're seeing with these companies that are coming in, I, I just don't see how we can continue with the same model that we've, we've had for the last 100, 150 years. Yeah. Early on, you got in trouble in your tenure about saying that uh, um, we don't necessarily need new coal and nuclear plants. Well, I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. No, let, let me clarify. <laughs> what, what I said is we don't necessarily need any more baseload um, uh, plants in, in, the, in that I think the word baseload is an anachronism because what we need is the cheapest sources of energy services that will provide the level of reliability that we desire. And if we do that, you don't need a, a baseload coal plant out doing that. You need whatever you do need. It may be um, a wind system uh, providing power remotely. It may be a battery system of storage. It may be a, a local generation system, whether it be solar PV or a natural gas-fired uh, combined heat and power system. But whatever the combination of the system is, it's whatever that particular consumer desires and needs for the cost level that they think is appropriate and the reliability level that they think is appropriate based upon their choices. So, I mean, just to follow up on that, um, to accomplish that, in my opinion, we actually need to achieve the level of dexterity that we currently have on the supply side on the demand side, right? So we right. actually need to be able to control loads just as much as we control supply now. Yes, absolutely. You've done extraordinary work on that. How does that actually roll itself out? I'm just trying to understand your vision well, there. It rolls itself out by continuing to reveal the value of consumers having that level of control and the ability to ultimately... Um, bid in uh, energy services into the grid, for example, like ancillary services of regulation and spending reserve and other things that they can do simply by controlling their loads and doing that through enabling entrepreneurs to work with consumers to put in these technologies to then reveal these values to the consumers and help those consumers lower their overall costs. So, again, it's through markets, exactly what Catherine said up here just a few moments ago, is ultimately getting the market right. And what we've tried to do on the FERC side, which is our side that we have jurisdiction over, which is the wholesale side, is get the market as right as we can for all of these resources to, to be able to bid in at various levels for various energy services and to do that and reveal those values to them so they can make that available to them. L little known, for example, you can actually bid into PGM capacity from solar systems in PGM. That, that actually can be, you can actually extract value by doing that. Now, they discount that capacity for solar because obviously it's not available 24-7, but nevertheless, there is a capacity value for solar and PJM. There's also obviously an energy value as well. There should be potentially some ancillary services value. All those values need to be revealed and need to be available in a market structure so that these things can, in fact, compete in a proper market setting. So you're obviously thinking about this from a wholesale perspective, but I want to dip down to the retail level where a lot of folks here are operating and talk about your perception of the value of solar on the grid when we think about a lot of the battles that we're seeing around net metering and whether we should cap net metering or continue it indefinitely or find some other value of solar tariff. As you look at the debate around the value of solar on the grid and what that means for crediting policies, um, what's your perspective of what 
solar brings. Well, again, I think we're going to have to look at all the values, the values at the, up at the wholesale level of capacity, energy, ancillary services, all that it can bring to the grid on that side. And then we have to look at what are the values at the distribution level, and there's multiple values there as well, Re relief of congestion, potentially voltage and VAR support, uh, other um, things in re reducing the uh, need for uh, maintenance on uh, distribution level equipment, et cetera, by reducing the, um, <clears throat> the, the stress on certain uh, distribution level equipment. All those things have to be counted and somehow those values have to be revealed and those values have to be made available to any resource that in fact can provide those services. So, so it, it, is, it is a value issue. It's interesting, I just saw Moody's report just today or yesterday that said that they believe that net metering wasn't a big deal for utilities, yep. that they really shouldn't worry about it. Well, I agree to the extent that ultimately we do need to properly value these resources and give them the value that they're providing to the grid. And whether that value is equal to or more than or less than what we provide them with net metering, I think it's not relevant. The relevant issue is we have to have the analytics to be able to determine what those actual values are and then the market mechanisms to reveal and provide the um, actual values to the providers of those services. Um, Mr. Chairman, you all have been, FERC has been great about using that data to then write rules that make sense and, and require ISOs to value certain characteristics and that they apply that right. they apply to the grid. But how do you deal and I think this is kind of what Stephen was getting to, to this natural tension between what FERC has authority over and what the states have authority over. And how do we resolve that? Because every state is completely different. Well, unfortunately, you have to resolve it on a state-by-state -state basis, just like we did RPSs in 30 different states. You've got to, unfortunately, go to each state commission, set up a proceeding, and in those proceedings, put evidence on the record, and the evidence has to demonstrate exactly what the retail values are at the distribution level for solar in that particular jurisdiction, and it may be different in Maine than it is in Massachusetts, than it is in Florida, than it is in Arizona. But ultimately, those cases have to be fought out within each one of those jurisdictions. And I know it's very expensive. It's, I know it's very time-consuming. But again, we did it for RPSs. We did it for noble portfolio standards on a state-by-state -state basis, and we succeeded largely. The, you know, the majority of the states in this country do have robust renewable portfolio standards. As you know, there's a, a big challenge in ERCOT where uh, the wind industry has done so well <coughs> that uh, they've destroyed wholesale prices um, at night. And a lot of the natural gas industry and the coal industry and others, and this is playing out in, in full force in Germany, but a lot of these folks have um, really lost their shirts. And now ERCOT's saying we need to add a capacity market, et cetera. I mean, do you think this is just creative destruction, or do you actually you know, think there's a real problem here in, in Texas? No, I think it is creative destruction in the sense that I believe ultimately the markets will work for the consumers if we set the prices correctly. I do believe that we do need a capacity market in Texas. In fact, I've, I've given speeches in Texas telling them that they should think about a capacity market. I think capacity markets are an essential part of the overall market structure and will help that that market, but not, but not only for you know, traditional generation, but will, will help the market for, for renewable generation as well. I think renewable generation can benefit from those capacity markets also. So I have been in panels before and have asked people to play regulator and think about um, 
what they would do on a utility level or on a regional level to help utilities um, evolve their business models and embrace distributed generation. If you look down at the suite of policies that people are proposing to, uh, you know, whether it be decoupling or turning utilities into broader service providers, what do you think are the most compelling? Well, for me, I think the most compelling set of policies that a regulator could do, again, coming back to what I've said before, would be unbundling all the services that are provided to the consumer and making competitive all those services that could be made competitive. One service that probably is naturally not competitive is the local distribution service. That is the wires that, pipes and wires in essence that provide uh, the facility for the local consumer to access the larger grid. That's probably a non-competitive service. Other than that, I think every, everything else potentially is competitive. So the things that can be competitive should be made competitive and we should set up those competitive structures. The role then for the, consu- for the regulator then is to in essence be the consumer advocate overseeing and monitoring and enforcing the markets in ways that make sure that they're fair and open and transparent and that there's as little fraud and manipulation as possible so that the consumers have confidence in those markets. And that's ultimately what the regulator's role becomes rather than an economic regulator that they've traditionally been in the monopoly markets. You become a, a, a regulator overseeing sort of a consumer protection role. So maybe just a question for both Catherine and the chairman. but. You know, electric vehicles have been something that's risked around the corner for a very long time. I think today they're actually more real than they've ever been. Um, PJM has done a lot of work on vehicle-to-grid technologies, but most of the car makers haven't really allowed V2G. Um, but I just wonder, like, if you look out the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, how do you see the transportation market colliding with the electricity market? Well, I think it potentially could help it as far as you talk about, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel generators and others that are being driven out of the market by wind, et cetera. To the extent that, you know, prices are driven lower in these off hours, ultimately having more uh, load during those times that can take advantage of those lower prices, like electric vehicles, could be an advantage to other um, generators to be able to stay within the system and within the markets longer. The other thing that that I think we really do need to try to move the the car manufacturers towards, as you alluded to, is their um, incorporating in those vehicles the vehicle-to-grid opportunities to do things simply beyond, um, you know, taking energy and, and using the vehicle as a car, but thinking of it as a grid asset. So it can provide services to the grid, like regulation services and certainly energy and capacity, but primarily uh, providing uh, ancillary services or regulation services, which are extremely valuable, and that PGM has already demonstrated are capable of being provided while the car is actually being charged. So it can you know, do this while, in fact, it's receiving charging service from the grid. Yeah, I think it's going to end up being an incredible tool um, in the toolkit when EPA regs come out, is if you have... You have this as one of your clean options, um, clean air options. I think uh, it's the the trick is going to be in the details because uh, for a consumer to allow a utility to do whatever they want to to their car, I think it's going to be tricky. Um, over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, when, when I was at the utility, when there was a 
trouble call, you know, if you work storm trouble, you had a piece of paper. We didn't have computers back then. It was like in the dark ages. And you had a piece of paper, and it was like, oh, you know, Mrs. Smith is out on 4th Street. And the truck guy is like, oh, yeah, there's a tree down. I'll go out and see her. And there, it was very, very personal. And peop- there was a connection to the utility. You really knew all of your customers. And it's become so, you know, centralized in places where the call center isn't anywhere near where the outage is. And I think getting that relation back with consumers is has you know first of all they've had they've been fighting these fights with smart grid certainly but with cars i think it's going to be even tougher so i think it's the utilities that have been able to build those relationships back they're going to have the most success to begin with mm-hmm. all right so we're running low on time here and i want to wrap up with uh, just go down the line and hear from people on what they one really exciting thing that they see happening in the industry over the next year or a couple of years that people can take with them um, chairman wellinghoff let's start with you you know, whether it be on a federal regulatory level, on a utility level, or on the solar industry level, I mean, what are you looking at? What do you think will, what's, what excites you as you look at the industry? I, I think the most exciting thing I see in the solar industry is the enthusiasm of consumers, of consumers really wanting to embrace this technology and how that is driving the growth in the industry. And that's the most exciting thing I've seen over the last couple of years, and I think it's going to just continue to accelerate in the future. Excellent. Chigger Shah. Well, you know, um, what I'm actually pretty excited about is that distributed generation, I think, will come to mean more than solar. And when you look at what Bloom Energy has done recently in terms of their interconnection here in Maryland, but also all the cogen systems that are coming out that do, you know, uh, tri-gen actually for, um, for grocery stores where they're providing cooling and heating and electricity, um, I think you're going to see a huge explosion of distributed generation. And my, my sense is, is that um, the utility, you know, thinks that they they hate solar now, and I think they're going to, you know, they're they're going to have a rude awakening when all the rest of these guys come online. Catherine Hamilton, I have loved uh, coming here and seeing all these people creating climate wealth. Um, <laughs> I I honestly no. think it was funny when, when Jigger paid her to say that. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Ron Benz was sitting up here and saying that everybody's here because of carbon, I was like. Actually, I thought most people were here because they were trying to make a living doing this stuff. <laughs> and, and I do think you all are doing that. And I, I think that's what's exciting because I do think clean energy is going to win. Yeah. I mean, what excites me is that when you look at the people who are really devoted to the industry, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, that people are actually making these fights, winning these fights on a local level. Uh, you know, success is lumpy, but we now have built a very large constituency on the back that a lot of advocates have been doing for decades. And when you look at the state-level battles that have cropped up, you know, we've seen 29 pieces of legislation introduced around the country to repeal renewable energy standards or to uh, water them down. People have come out and fought for them on a local level. And when you look at what happened in Georgia uh, in North Carolina, what you see kind of brewing in Virginia is that there are constituencies that are really promoting this industry. And, and when you put the right policies in place, people are going to fight to keep those in place, even though we see a lot of headwinds. Um, so that's what excites me. And uh, I think we'll wrap it up at that. Chairman Wellinghoff, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I want to give a really big thank you to MDVCA for inviting us here. Uh, this was their idea to, to do this show. We really have been wanting to do more live shows. So this is our first 
opportunity to do this. And they put together a fantastic conference today, and we really appreciate them in, inviting us. So thanks to MDVC. Uh, um, we should also... We, we, we should also specifically thank Sudha for yes. all of her extraordinary work, and it just reminds you you can never have enough Indian people. <laughs> Sudha did a lot of work to make this happen, so we really appreciate her. Um, and, and just to give people some more information, we are doing this every week. We, we have a lot of guests come on. We're talking about all the topics coming th- through the news. Again, environmental topics, clean tech topics. Topics about the broader energy markets, and uh, so it's a lot of fun, and we hope that you'll tune in. It's the Energy Gang podcast. To see links of the topics that we discuss, you can go to greentechmedia.com, and we'll have those on the podcast page. To subscribe to the show, you can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes, or you can integrate our RSS feed into the player of your choice. And for anyone out there or folks listening, for any questions, comments, show ideas, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We love hearing from people. Catherine, yeah, really thanks. good to do this in person. Thank you. I'm just sorry the people who are having to listen to this can't see all the lighters up in the air in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger, glad you got out of your PJs and got in a suit. Yeah, no, this is great. I'm looking forward to drinking on Chadbourne Apartment. That's right. <laughs> Chairman Wellenhoff, thank you very much again. Yeah. And, and again, there will be a Chadbourne Park reception after this. Thank you.